And greetings and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, where we talk about assorted medical legal issues. Um, and to, I'm your host, Jeff Siegel. I'm the founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Gita Pensa. So who is Dr. Gita Pensa? She's an associate professor, clinical educator with the Brown University Emergency Medicine Residency. In 2015, she launched Brown's Emergency Medicine's educational blog, which now garners over 10,000 visits a month, as well as the Brown Emergency Medicine podcast series. She created and serves as host and editor of AEM Early Access, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that, a collaborative podcasting project from the Academy, I'm sorry, from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal and the Brown Emergency Medicine Residency. She speaks nationally on digital education innovation. And by the way, I've been on her podcast and the podcast is masterfully engineered, different than the podcast we're doing here, which is back and forth conversation. In many senses, I'm jealous of the the um, the editing and engineering that goes into this. And again, we'll probably do a deeper dive into this. At a local level, she teaches about podcasting and educational technology and serves as the longitudinal mentor to over 40 Brown medical students. Dr. Pence is creator of the open access podcast called Doctors and Litigation, the L word, the L word, I love that. A novel narrative style podcast curriculum on the psychological and practical preparation required for malpractice litigation. She speaks nationally on the topic of malpractice litigation as well. She was named the 2018 EMRA National Mentor of the Year and won the Rhode Island American College of Emergency Physician 2019 Special Service Recognition Award for Courageous Public Advocacy of Rhode Island Emergency Medicine College. This is awesome. Gita, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's nice so to talk to you again. Yes, we yeah, talked on the podcast. Time is flown. <laughs> you're an ER physician, correct? I am. Yeah. So, I mean, you see people who are the sickest of the sick and your job is rather simple and complicated at the same time. You've got to diagnose and stabilize and treat or discharge. Have I nailed that down properly? That's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. Easy peasy. What could be what could be any simpler than that? Absolutely. What what could go wrong when you have, you know, way more patients than you have rooms and a million people in the waiting room and you know this person is having a psychotic break next to that person who's having a cardiac arrest it's you know it's all it's all easy <laughs> you know it's interesting i was just doing a uh, webinar before we started this podcast and part of the conversation um reflected leaving against medical advice leaving ama and mm -hmm. part of the legal requirements is to evaluate whether a patient is even competent to make that decision to leave AMA. And in that context, you know, it, it is often helpful to have a psychiatrist available next door to help you make that decision. But I don't think that's the reality of the modern day ER. Am I mistaken? Oh, no, I, I no, we, we usually make that judgment on our own and try yeah. to document why we think that's right. But yeah, we straddle that line all the time. So give me a average day in the life of Dr. Pence in the emergency department. I know you wear a lot of hats. Uh, part of that includes education because you're in an academic institution, but part of it's clinical, part of it's academic, part of it's uh, training and teaching, but help yeah. help our audience understand 
um, who you are, what you do, and then we'll talk about the hiccup you had in your life. It's a hiccup I had also, so it resonates on a deep level. And that hiccup is something that um, you're, I, I think as physicians, we're not properly prepared for. I don't think we get any background training or experience with this in medical school. And just to give people a heads up, um, Gita was sued. I was sued. And if you are, if you practice medicine in the United States, odds are over time, you will get a love letter from an attorney. But um, jump in. Average day with Dr. Pansa. So my, my average day now, well, I, you know, when I'm in the emergency department, I'm in the emergency department. I work um, at one of our larger academic hospitals in Providence, Rhode Island. And I also work at um, a community hospital where I live about 40 minutes away from it. But that's the community hospital where I started because when I started practice um, coming out of residency, I uh, was strictly community uh, emergency medicine. And I did that for 13 years. And then um, in the midst of the hiccup, uh, as you called it, which it was a 12 year long hiccup. So oh, by the way, that, um, the hiccup's a euphemism. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah okay. We'll get back to that. We'll yeah, get back we to that. But I, I did change gears and as part of my, um, it wasn't really a plan, but, you know, just sort of making changes that I, I wanted to make to make myself happier and feel more fulfilled with what I did. I wound up um, joining this academic practice. And um, one of the funny things about not having been an academic for a long time um, and then trying to re-enter is that you you kind of need a niche to be an academic. Um, and I was absolutely a generalist. That's just, that's what I did. Um, and so when I joined the practice, one of the things they needed a little help with was um, bringing, and I apologize, my dog is barking in the background. I don't know. I if didn't that's... even hear it. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Um, the mailman must've just come. <laughs> yes. um, but part of that was just trying to figure out where where could I insert myself in a way that I, you know, that I could really be of use and maybe that I would enjoy. Um, and the residency at the time um, was just trying to figure out how to use all these new open access blogs and podcasts and things like that for um, residency training um, to kind of augment conferences and things like that. And so my first role was in designing a digital um course in emergency medicine that would sort of complement the curriculum as it went along. And then my residents were like, hey, like we could we could do one of these blogs. And so we started this open access educational blog, which was actually it's still going strong. It's a lot of fun. The residents do amazing work. It's all, um, you know, the faculty over, you know, they they edit everything and it's um we're really proud of what we built. And then the extension what, what, of that was the time out. What does open access mean? Oh, uh, help, help our audience understand what it, that means. It means it means free, basically. So anybody, anywhere, as long as you have an internet connection, you could log on to brownemblog.com as the was the URL mm -hmm. and learn um, about emergency medicine. It's basically it's geared towards physicians, but you could learn about anything from emergency ultrasound to you know the latest in resuscitation techniques to how to best reduce a dislocated finger. Um, but our residents look are on that on the lookout for interesting cases or topics that they want to delve deep in and they, you know, they write something up with references and then we so and we do videos and all sorts of stuff that um it's turned into like a lot of fun. It's a great teaching tool. Um, something then, that I could have certainly used as it because I trained in neurosurgery, but when I was at, and this was 
think right as emergency medicine was becoming a formal discipline. So mm -hmm. I used to moonlight all the time. I mean, oh, all yeah. the time. not because I had any time. It's just I didn't have any money. So we were I think we were mostly forbidden from moonlighting, but it wasn't it wasn't policed properly. Yeah. Um, so it turns out I had so many hours moonlighting that apparently I was close to, if not properly qualified for being grandfathered in for board certification, which doesn't, I don't think that tells you my fund of knowledge. I think it just describes the number of hours I put into it. My point being, I would have loved to have, have had access to this type of educational material. Um, the people that were teaching me ER medicine were the um, ER nurses that had been there for 30 years. They, um, <laughs> they, they knew ER medicine backwards and forwards because that's where they lived. They had no life other than that. And they were actually amazing Oh, I'm mentors. sure. And I, I think what, what you've done here is that you institutionalized um, the wisdom from knowledgeable people like that and others to make it accessible. That's, that's the goal. That's the goal. Um, so uh, basically then the next step was they wanted to learn how to podcast and I wound up thinking, okay, that sounds fun. And I took a podcasting class and then um, pretty soon after that, the editor of a, of a journal in emergency medicine called Academic Emergency Medicine uh, was visiting Brown as a um, just a guest lecturer and uh, knew about our blog and asked, oh, is there a way that maybe we could collaborate? And that's how you mentioned the AEM Journal podcast. That is how we first I first started learning how to do remote interviewing and audio editing and all that stuff. And then when I got to be better at that, I had this sort of epiphany. Um, I was approaching, um, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this, the second trial um, in this whole saga. And I decided that I would make the thing that I wished I'd had when I'd started out. Um, you know, I'd spend a lot of years lost in this process of litigation, feeling very, you know, depressed, overwhelmed, burned out. Um, and after I've figured out how to get better, um, I decided that m maybe I, now I had this, it wasn't, you know, it kind of came together in a weird way. I certainly hadn't been planning this from the start, but I knew all of a sudden that I would be able to get the ideas that I wanted to get out, um, out in a new format that might be engaging and could be wide reaching. And, um, and so, yeah, I started out in 2017, I started interviewing people and I, I came to you, I think in 2018, maybe 2019. Um, but, uh, and then assembling all of this into um, a narrative style podcast. So rather than this interview style. So if you want to go back to what my typical day is like, so, you know, and then when I'm in the ED, I'm in the ED, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm working, I'm running my butt off. Um, and uh, now having, you know, coming back to really most days enjoying it. Some days it's a little overwhelming, but most days I'm glad to be there. Although um, the older I get, you know, the nights aren't so great, but, uh, but yeah, it, no, it's, trauma is a nocturnal illness. And yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, and then, uh, you know, on the days in between, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm podcasting, I'm um, speaking. I, I do a lot of speaking about litigation and litigation stress now. Um, I'm writing, I'm, you know, all of that stuff. So at least I get this sort of division of, of days where um, I have some academic release time to do the things that I do. And, um, and then when I'm on in the ED, I'm on in the ED. So you can speak, I think, authoritatively from personal experience of what it's like to be sued. 
and what happened. Tell us um, to the extent that you feel comfortable talking. I mean, you have spoken eloquently about the process you went through, lessons learned and nuggets of wisdom for other people who have never been sued or who are freshly sued, um, what to think about. But tell us what 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 happened to you and how it came as a real surprise uh, wake-up call, if you will. Yeah. So um, I was about five years out of residency um, and working. I was a nocturnist at the time. I was... Um, so I worked nights in this community emergency department. And at that time, I would be the only doctor in the hospital at night. So I would run the emergency department and I would have to go upstairs for a code or to do an airway and then come back down. And then actually they had L&D, but no OB in-house. So maybe I would have to mm -hmm. deliver a baby or come back down. So it was really, you know, it was exhilarating and, and terrifying uh, and all those things. But it was, uh, I definitely felt like I was where I belonged. And uh, and one night I took care of this um, young woman who had a really, um, just a really confusing constellation of symptoms. I spent a lot of time with her. I, I imaged her, I called a consultant, I um, did everything I could think to do, and I wound up setting her up with follow-up um, that morning. So she got discharged around six in the morning, and then um, she had follow-up scheduled at nine, but between six and nine, I guess suffice it to say, something terrible happened to her. Um, and she was taken to a tertiary care center and I didn't I didn't know anything about it until I got named in a lawsuit a few months later because How I did just, she present if you can recall? She oh yeah. <laughs> can I recall? Yes, I can recall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well that's the typical Not legal word. Doctor, can you recall what happened? Is it yeah. greater than 10 or less than 10, you know? <laughs> Not to get too into the weeds um in the the particulars of the case, but she presented with um eye pain and right eye pain, blurred vision, and photophobia. And um, I, you know, going through everything, I wound up scanning her head and doing all the stuff and every eye test you could imagine and testing her ocular pressures and everything. And she did, she had like 2200 vision in one eye and normal in the other. And, you know, her exam absolutely suggested it should be an eye problem. Um, her neurologic exam was otherwise totally intact. She was fine. She was like walking around the department, just, you know, holding on to her eye. Um, and then in the end, and this was back, you know, this was in 06. And so, um, we did not do CT angiograms back then. Now we do them all the time, but that wasn't a thing that we did, uh, back then. And so she had a plain CT and but, but typically, nothing. you know, I, again, I'm just thinking, out loud, I actually know the diagnosis here, so I'm, I'm being <laughs> coy. But this CT angiogram in general for a patient presenting with eye pain would not be the first of one or two tests to be ordered. It's the type of thing that if you're going to pile on, yeah, order everything. But if you're uh, certainly if you were in another country that had limited resources, um, you would have to think this through and triage and use use your resources judiciously. Oh, sure. But a CT angiogram would not be on top of the list. No, it would not. And she honestly, like when you when you go through the medicine of the case and how she presented uh, with it wasn't visual loss, it was blurred vision, it was photophobia, it was one eye, it was monocular, like everything pointed to this being an eye problem. It should have been an eye problem. Mm -hmm. It should not have been a brain problem, which is what it wound up being. Um, but I, you know, when I talked to an ophthalmologist, the first thing she asked was, did you order a head CT? I was like, yeah, you know, I looked at, I did CT of her brain and orbits and, um, everything looked fine. I just, 
couldn't figure it out. Um, and then everything kind of came back to, she said she felt better. Um, she wanted to go home. And then I, you know, we sort of thought, well, maybe it's a migraine or something, but it's just so strange, you know. Sounds like the hurricane with the eye coming through your house right yeah. now. You go, oh, I guess it's safe to go outside now. <laughs> okay. That's what you think, right? Time to go play and, in the yard. And then she went home and she had a, a pretty significant cerebellar stroke. Um, and so when she got taken to the tertiary care center, they repeated the head CT, which now showed a cerebellar infarct. And um, it took a while, but then they wound up doing an MRI, um, an MRA of her brain and neck, and it showed that she had a vertebral artery dissection, not a carotid. Sometimes you can make sense of facial pain with a carotid, um, but this made no sense. It didn't make any sense whatsoever, but regardless, she had a vertebral artery dissection, um, and she wound up having a cerebellar stroke, and I was basically sued for failure to diagnose or delay in diagnosis. So we can agree this was a tough diagnostic challenge. This, First of all, uh, a vertebral artery dissection is not a common condition unless there's obvious trauma, in which case you're thinking about it, or symptoms referable perhaps to the neck where the vertebral artery sits. Well, I should say the caveat is that she had had, um, she was recovering from um, an anterior cervical discectomy. And so the theory was that something had happened um, mm -hmm. that week before in the OR of course, the surgeon was not sued, but something had happened the week before. That was this is all working backwards. Like she had no pain, she had no no worsening symptoms in her neck. Like the neck was fine, the incision was fine. Like she was not nothing about this was directing anything to the neck. Um, but that, actually, that I have might, a question for you yeah, about sure. that case, and you okay. you may not have access to it. Do you have any idea how long that case took in the operating room? Because an anterior cervical disectomy generally does not take very long unless you run into problems like you accidentally nick the vertebral artery and have to wait for it to clot. So was this a 45-minute case or a four-hour case, or do you even know? I, I don't know. I know that there was – I've certainly seen the op report, and there was nothing. So you and I it. should have met one another a long time ago. But. Probably. Probably <laughs> so. Um, probably so. And they. Well, anyway, um, long, very, very long story made a little shorter. Um, I was, uh, I was named a few months later. I was the sole physician named. They didn't name the surgeon. Um, and, uh, eventually it was a $28 million demand. Um, and I didn't know the first thing about any of this. I just, you know, I got named and I had I, I was completely, completely, completely unprepared. Like no one had really ever talked to me about, like we talk about risk management all the time. No one had ever said anything about once you were named, like then what? And I just, the, I think the implication of that is that it doesn't happen to good doctors. And so if you're well-trained and you do all the risk management golden rules, it shouldn't happen to you. And so when it did, I just was, um, I was beside myself. And um, a lot of the complex emotions that I was feeling, I think now I understand are part and parcel of a, a pretty normal expected human reaction to an outside stressor. But at the time, being a physician who really just thought she should be able to handle everything, um, I was, you know, overcome with anxiety and and guilt and 
um, feeling like I was um, a bad doctor. I was completely ashamed. I didn't want to mm -hmm. talk about it with anyone. I thought I couldn't talk about it with anyone. I didn't have any resources. Um, and I showed up. I didn't even know what, what like the first call to make. It was finally my chairman is the one that was like, oh, you have to call the, you call the insurer. Oh, okay. Right. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I met the attorney and I, I, I think it's fair to say when we look back on that, I was a mess when I showed up in his office. I just, I was an absolute mess. Um, now I when you talk to your me. academic chair, he said, call the insurance company. Was so it wasn't, it wasn't the academic chair at that time. So then when I was working, this is, it gets complicated, but at the okay. time when I was working there, we were a little tiny, just community group, like eight docs, two PAs, yeah. one secretary, that's it. And um, the chair just a lovely, lovely man. Glenn Hebel, if you're listening to this, I, I still adore hey, you. <laughs> um, but but he, I went to, like our group was also named. So he knew that mm. this was happening. And I, I was like, I don't, what do I, what do I do? Um, and he said, well, we call our insurer. And um, there was one attorney who had typically represented anyone in the group had, that a complaint had come up with. There was this one guy. Um, and he was like, if you don't have anybody else, I suggest you use this guy because he's awesome. Um, and so that's what I did. And he was um, he was a great attorney. I will absolutely say that. He was an ex-Marine and he had no time for my baloney, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, really, this <laughs> is very much just like, you need to get over yourself. Uh, and I could not, I could not. I had a terrible time. It sounds like um, he was ready to storm Omaha Beach, correct? Yeah. And yeah. I, but I was just, I was all, I was, by the time I got to his office, I'd seen enough, you know, I, I, at first I was, and then I got mad because I realized that like, there's no way, like, I feel like I exceeded standard of care with this case. I just had a crappy outcome. She had a terrible outcome. I feel really bad that that happened, but I didn't do that. And I, there's nothing I could have done to stop this. And I then I was obsessed with like why can't you make this go away? Denial, and, anger, bargaining. Oh, the whole yeah, <laughs> yeah. the whole Google thing, bosses. the whole thing. Um, Joined us on the And podcast. I think I just settled in depression. It was I was very far from acceptance for like a long. I think I was in anger. I was stuck in anger, frankly, for a long, long, long time. But it had repercussions to like every other facet of my life, and I just didn't know how to handle it. I had always been a very resilient person. I was, you know, a hard worker. I was just, I was used to kind of keeping my head down and doing what had to be done. And, um, I could not, I could not reckon with this. I could not. It's a significant I, distraction when it happens. It's hard to, it, you can't get your mind off of it. It keeps popping no. in. And every time you go to work, you know, I, I, all of a sudden I hated going to work. I hated going to work. I, I didn't want to go. I had loans. There was no way I was quitting. And the other thing about medicine is that unless you wind up going to law school, <laughs> Dr. Siegel, then otherwise you have pretty much no other marketable skills. Like you're a doctor or that's it. So I, I did, had no idea what to do. Um, but I, so I just kept showing up for work, but I hated it. I hated it. I, you know, every, every, patient was just a, a, you know, a landmine waiting to go off. Mm, I, a plaintiff. Yeah, absolutely. Plaintiff. I, I had this total, I was super burned out. I would literally cry on the way to work. Um, and you know, alone in my car and I, you know, in the meantime I had like 
I had been pregnant with my third child when I saw this patient. Like I had three little kids at home. Um, I, you know, it was just, it, it, it seeped out into everything. It seeped out into everything. It was, you know, it, I'm sure it affected my parenting and I was certain my husband's a physician, but like, you know, I, at least he got it. He understood, but like, I was not, for the first time in my life, I really felt like I could not handle something. I could not handle it. Did not know what to do. Could not handle it. And didn't know who to, I'm not even, didn't I not know who to talk to? I just thought I wasn't supposed to talk about it at all with anybody. And I had no skills in terms of, you know, like I'd never, I'd never talked to a therapist. I'd never um, read a self-help book. I'd never, like, I'd never needed any of those things. So like, well, demand letter just... for $28 million is shocking. Oh, yeah. I mean, attorneys rarely send that out unless they're suing the hospital that has the deepest of pockets. But most physicians carry $1 million, $3 million in coverage, maybe two and four. But I don't know of any physician that has $28 million worth of coverage at all. <laughs> they, they don't. And so I know that in some ways those outli- those outsized demands, now I know, are a way to, from the get-go, get that physician on their knees. I, I understand that now. Mm-hmm. I understand it's a tactic. I know they know I don't have $28 million. I you know, they can't get blood from a stone. Like I, yeah, I, I know that they know that. Um, and they also know that, you know, the, what, however it works in my state, you know, if I signed a consent to settle like that's, and they, I did immediately, as soon as they, as soon as I understood that if I signed a consent to settle and left it up to the insurer as to whether or not we went to trial, Mm-hmm. I decided that I was very happy to let the insurer make that decision. And because then I would be protected if there was a judgment in excess of policy limits. And so all I wanted to do first of all, which is what now what I recommend to everybody to think about, because most people are like, oh, no, I want to fight. But just just think about it for a second. Um, the thing number one is that I wanted to protect my assets. I didn't have a ton of assets, but whatever I had, I worked really hard for. Right. So I wanted to keep those. Um, and so the first opportunity I had, um, as because I had the opportunity, um, was to to give that consent to settle to my insurer. It just turned okay, out so, that they never wanted to settle. Okay, so we're um, let's talk about that for a second. So a consent yeah. to settle when when you tell your insurance company, "Hey, I'm okay settling up to and including policy limits." Let's assume it's yes. a one million dollar policy. That means that you've given them authority to roll over and to give them a million dollars. And if the carrier, in its wisdom, decides that it is a defensible case and they want to roll the dice uh, and protect their $1 million, um, they're playing with their own money. It's house money. So if they get burned for $5 million from, uh, from a jury verdict, then they're going to have to dig deep into their own pockets or appeal, whatever. You're not on the hook because you've done everything you can possibly do to make that work. One other point that I'd like to make is that there are a number of options when you want to protect your nest egg, and that's exactly what you want to do. You don't want to go bankrupt, um, you know, just trying to self-righteously um, get your day in court. So first things first, when there are no problems and everything is safe, protect your assets. There are formal asset protection programs. There are different things that can be done. Some are actually quite minor and easy, just how things are titled. 
Um, retirement accounts, for example, are often protected depending upon the state you live in, like Texas or Florida, your homestead may be protected. But just understand these types of things where you are protected and where you're vulnerable. And to the extent you can make any moves, do it. So that's one thing that can be done. The other thing is um, the um, consent to settle. So if, if you give your carrier the right to settle, um, you like you individually will likely not go bankrupt because um, if you say roll over and give policy limits and you get a $5 million, $5 million verdict because the carrier decided to defend and maybe appropriately defend, um, you're not really gambling with your own money. And then finally, there's something called a high-low agreement. High-low agreement is a tool that can be used when each side has some risk, meaning that the plaintiff knows this is not a slam dunk case. You know it's not a slam dunk case. Everybody has a risk. You want your day in court, but you don't want to risk your nest egg. There's something called a high-low agreement where the purpose of the jury, you're going to get your day in court, the purpose of the jury is to determine whether you are liable or not liable. That's it. They'll come up with a number, and that number may be anything from zero, you're not liable, to a gazillion dollars where you're liable for a gazillion dollars. But none the numbers are not relevant because you've had this side agreement, a high-low agreement, where the attorney, the plaintiff attorney, will not walk away with nothing. So a high-low agreement may be um, an agreement where on the low end, the plaintiff attorney will get $100,000. On the high end, they may get policy limits, say a million dollars. The before picture may have been every side takes unlimited risk. You win, the doctor, plaintiff collects nothing, or the jury comes back and gives you a really bad day, you lose $10 million. But in that particular model, when we had this side agreement, this side high-low agreement, the uh, the bookends were 100000 to a $1 million. So um, if the jury comes back and says, you, the doctor, win, you still have to write a check for $100,000. We won't get into the weeds of the benefits of that, but that's not reportable to the data bank. So they get a little money and go away. On the other end, the jury comes back, gives you a rotten day, says a gazillion dollars, you have to pay 20 million, or in this case, 28 million, million dollars. <laughs> you go, whoa, 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 we've got this high-low agreement and it's capped at a million dollars. I'm going to tender policy limits. At least I had my day in court. I feel better about that. My family doesn't have to worry. I didn't have to dig into my, my personal funds to do that. So I digress. Keep going. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague, and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. 
That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation, best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.